Hello, welcome to the Eating for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Harriet Home, founder of Healthy Eating Doctor, registered nutritionist and doctor. I studied medicine at Cambridge University, worked in the NHS for over a decade, have a PhD in genetics, lecture on nutrition and was commissioned to write a novel degree combining culinary skills, nutrition and health. I'm on a mission to break down nutrition myths and share science-backed nutrition to help empower you. I'll share some interviews, theories and practical tips focused around nutrition and health. Stay tuned to find out more. This week I'm delighted to have Dr Chris on my podcast to try to answer some topics that are frequently seen on social media. Chris is not only an NHS GP based in London, but he's also director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and leads the Physical Activity Specialist Interest Group. He's also a spokesperson for the Healthcare Workers Foundation, which is a charity set up by NHS workers during the pandemic for frontline key workers. He's a keen sportsman and can be found regularly appearing on TV, radio and the news. It's a real pleasure to have Dr. Chris George on with me today, and he's a GP and he's going to tell me a little bit about himself first. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on today, Harriet. Um, my name is Dr. Chris. I work as a NHS GP. Um, I'm based in London. Um, I have different roles as a GP. The first one is director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So we look at things like sleep, exercise, nutrition, stress management, and how that kind of plays a part in managing chronic disease. I'm also a spokesperson for the Healthcare Workers Foundation, which is a, a charity set up by NHS workers for NHS workers um, following the global pandemic. And we look at how we can support families who've sadly lost uh, relatives to, uh, because of the pandemic. And we have various scholarships for family members, as well as supporting with PP um, for staff members that didn't have it at the beginning of the pandemic. That sounds really important work. I didn't know about that role. Um, how did how did you get into that? Yeah, so it's something that I've always been quite passionate about. And uh, a couple of colleagues of mine from medical school actually um, started this foundation. And they asked me to come on board and I've been able to work with them to get the sort of charity off the ground um, and to get it sort of publicised so that people are aware of it and fellow healthcare workers can apply for any grants or bursaries as needed. Okay, that's great. And I'm going to talk to you now really more a bit about your your day job. So your day job, you're a GP. And together, we're going to have a chat about some sort of common themes that I often get asked about. And I think it'd be really nice to have a shared nutrition medical perspective on them. Um, So the first one is going to be about obesity. And I really want to sort of talk about what the health effects of obesity um, because it really is linked with so many preventable diseases. It's a huge burden on the NHS, sort of a, the sort of fatty liver, increased risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease. Um, and it's a growing epidemic, really, isn't it? So although we have the COVID epidemic and feels like a fire that we have to put out now, I think this obesity epidemic is more a sort of slow burning fire that we're really only going to see the results of in years to come and, and what a you know, huge effect it, it will have. Um, and obesity has tripled worldwide since 1975. And the WHO say said that in 2016, more than so more than 1.9 billion adults were overweight, which is I think it's, you know really crazy figures. Um, and most of the world's population live in countries where overweight and obesity kills more people than underweight. So. How do you help your patients in in you know the clinic? How do you give them information, and what sort of questions do you get about obesity? 
So I think recently what I've seen quite a lot of is people who've gone through the pandemic, lockdown, it's changed our lifestyle patterns quite a lot, myself included. Um, so patients and myself, you know, we've changed diet. There's been lockdown with gyms and exercise facilities haven't been open. So a lot of people have actually gained weight during the last sort of year and a half, two years as a result. So people coming through asking, how can I improve my lifestyle? How can I lose weight? How can I get fitter? And it's really about taking a bit of a 360 degree approach to that patient and taking a step back and finding out what their daily routines are like, how they change and just starting with low hanging fruits, you know, looking at what they're eating, maybe just cutting out uh, simple refined sugars and also looking at exercise and what people enjoy. Uh, because I think there's no point trying to prescribe a quite an intensive exercise regime that I wouldn't do myself. So I'm not going to ask my patients to do that. So it's about saying, what do you enjoy doing? And I keep it quite broad, whatever exercise is, you know, as long as it gets your heart rate up, you get a little bit sweaty, um, just picking an activity that you enjoy and committing to it sort of at least four or five times a week and getting yourself outside, walking, that kind of thing is all really good in terms of helping increase physical activity. And then looking at the diet as well, and what we what I try and encourage patients to do is the basic things first of all, so making sure that they're having at least two litres of water per day or some fluids, making sure that we're cutting, reducing refined sugars, switching things for um, whole grains, um, and trying to increase people's fruit and vegetables. I've worked in different parts of the country as a GP, and it really does vary the kind of information and knowledge that people have about nutrition. So I've worked in Surrey where I did a lot of my training um, as a GP. And there, the kind of eat well plate and five a day is quite well known. And actually, the diet's quite good. Whereas when I've worked in places like Lambeth and other deprived boroughs of London, um, there's not that understanding about what constitutes a healthy diet. So it's about going through basics of what composition of the plate should look like um, and increasing fruit and veg, because quite often that's something that people don't really have in their diet at times because the healthier foods tend to be the more expensive foods. And for people living on quite a budget it's about making sure that they're able to make those changes um, at an affordable um, price for them yeah I think that's a really key point actually I think that healthy food often is more expensive and it's far cheaper to get fast food which is quick and if you've got a family and you're working it's often easier to, to have the processed food wherever you are in life just one thing I'd so I I did a podcast recently with um, a consultant nephrologist and he said there is no evidence at all about drinking two litres of water. He said you just should drink till thirst and the excess hydration isn't actually beneficial for health at all. So I just thought I'd throw that out there because I know it's quite contentious about the, the water thing. I think, you know, just make sure you're hydrated and you, you've got enough. Um, but those are all really sound points there. Another thing that sort of I come across as well is that you can't outrun a bad diet. Mm -hmm. So however much exercise you do, if you're just going to live off chocolate, you, you're, you're not going to outrun that. I guess the more it was sort of an outdated model that people used to think that energy balance was why you gained weight, that what you eat, take away the energy use exercising equals your weight. And now we know that the microbiota have an important role to play. So do you find that your patients know much about that or are they well informed? Do you do you feel you know that much about it? How do you sort of approach all that? Yeah, there's a really interesting question and points there from what you said. So the first thing about the nephrologist, um, about hydration, what I would say to that is that actually water in itself can sometimes help in terms of the hunger cues that we get. 
So actually it helps to keep people feeling fuller, even it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be overly hydrated or you need to drink excessive amounts of hydrate, but actually just making sure that you're not snacking or you're not having more food than um, maybe it's recommended. That's why I kind of advise the two litres of water from that point of view. Yeah, that's a really great point. Often people confuse thirst and hunger and it's always a great idea to have some water, absolutely, to see if, to see if it was just thirst. Yeah, yeah and with, with regards to the microbiota, it really does vary. When I do a lot of the wellness panels, um, I do in my sort of free times, evenings, that kind of thing, actually the demographic of, pay, of people there tend to know about the microbiome or have at least heard of it. When I work as a GP in my day job, it's actually not that common that people know what the microbiome is or the importance of it and why what we put into our mouths is actually really important for the balance um, and numbers of um, microorganisms that live within our tummy. Yeah, I'll just um, add on that, that just for people that are interested and are listening, while we're sort of talking about the importance of the microbiota, there have been um, quite a few animal studies that have shown that if you transplant feces from an obese human, say into a mouse or a rat, um, on a no- normal standard diet, they actually increase and gain weight. And you can reverse that by doing a fecal transplant from a, um, a lean human, and they will then lose weight. So there's obviously a really big role of the microbiota, certainly in that uh, animal model. And um, we're still really learning about, um, about humans, but it certainly looks like there's the same that, that happens. And that's why eating not just your fruit and vegetables is good for fiber and antioxidants but it's also good to feed all those those bugs and the whole grains and, and everything as well that we that chris has just mentioned there so that's great um and do you think then that there are lots of resources out there to help people that you can guide them to do you have any suggestions of where you'd normally send people or do you find it's quite difficult as with sort of regards to dietary advice yeah i find the dietary advice is quite difficult to kind of give over in within a 10-minute consultation so Whenever I see a patient, I'm always aware that I'm not going to be able to give them all the information within 10 minutes. And it's probably going to take a few appointments to get that information across. So that's why I kind of start with the basics and the low hanging fruits to begin with and then move on to the other things and regular check ins, that kind of thing. I'm really lucky because where I work, we have nurses within the practice who can give a bit of lifestyle advice as well. So I can certainly give the basics and direct the patients to different resources, but actually, I can actually um, refer on to the, uh, some of the nurses who have a bit more training in that area. Um, and also patients are also able to be referred to the weight management programs. And there are varying degrees of success with that. Some people actually love it. Some people find it's a bit more of a challenge. Um, and then we also have uh, social prescribing now. So we can look at prescribing things like gym memberships and community projects and activities that can also form sort of useful adjuncts to sort of treatment and management of weight. So those are also really exciting things that, are coming up which I think we're exploring more and more and a lot of healthcare professionals may not, and patients may not be aware that we can actually refer to what we call social prescribing so it's also worth checking those out and asking GP is there an element of um, social um, things that we can actually help people with so that they can successfully lose weight. And how do you find the patients react to those then are they quite positive about about having sort of those social prescribing things or are they quite shocked I think they're unaware, first of all, of that as an option. And then they're actually quite interested in it. And a lot of patients actually want to do sort of social and lifestyle changes as opposed to jumping into medications. You know, we have things like Orlistat and various other medications that we can prescribe within general practice to help weight loss. Uh, but I think a lot of people want to try the lifestyle approach, first of all, before starting medications. I think there's been this kind of move away from just 
you know, going to doctor, being given tablets and taking them and not really asking questions, which is a great thing that people are advocating for their own health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's changed hugely, hasn't it, from that sort of paternalistic, you know, doctor giving out a pill to actually now having more sort of shared responsibility of, of yeah, and including all those lifestyle factors as well, which I think is fantastic. And I guess it's so important for preventing all those long term health conditions that we started talking off at the, you know, the beginning. I'm going to talk to you now about reflux. So reflux is something that I often get asked about. And I and I'm going to ask you to to define what reflux is or tell us what reflux is and then also the term gastroesophageal reflux disease or that's sort of GERD or GORD some people call it as well so can you tell us what it is? Yeah so gastroesophageal reflux disease is basically reflux of contents within the esophagus which is basically our food pipe and that quite often causes typical symptoms of things such as heartburn, regurgitation. It can also be linked to sort of uh, other symptoms around the body these include things like asthma, uh, chronic cough and laryngitis. It's normally multifactorial disease, so um, it can be due to transient low esophageal sphincter relaxation um, and also can be due to uh, problems with the pressure within the esophageal sphincter as well. So just to explain that then, so the, at the top of your stomach, you've got a sphincter, so that's a sort of circular ring of muscle that's got a sort of tone, so it's contracted and it opens to allow your food down the esophagus into the stomach um, and then closes so that your food's not regurgitating back up your esophagus, your gullet or your food pipe. People with reflux, that's open or they've got um, an altered um, parasympathetic activity. So that's the nerve that supplies those muscles that maybe um, don't allow it to contract quite when it should do or as much so that the contents of your stomach then go back up your esophagus and that's what causes the pain and the problem and the symptoms and it's because the acid your stomach is designed to have stomach acid in it but your esophagus is not so it seems then that I can well certainly I know from medical school and being a doctor that um, it was very much sort of treated with fairly sort of simplistic um, I guess sort of as we would call it as doctors sort of uh, conservative management that you would do sort of the basics first you would um, you wouldn't have big meals so that there's less pressure on your stomach um, you wouldn't have spicy food um, you'd maybe avoid known triggers if you if you have them or acidic or very spicy foods as well um, smoking and those kind of things can can also make it worse often you get worsening in pregnancy because you've got you know, a fetus in there as well, putting additional abdominal pressure. So do you think then things have changed that much? Because it feels to me in my new role that this is, I guess, a sort of a lot of unmet need. I'm just wondering if you have the same in general practice that a lot of people are complaining about reflux. Um, they're on really quite restrictive diets and they've often given up dairy and gluten um, they've maybe read books and and I just sort of really wanted to sort of unpick what your experience is and really I guess talk about what we both think is going on here maybe. Yeah I mean that's a great point I think when I see patients in my clinic and I look through their medication list there's quite often a tablet for reflux on there most common one being a meprazole for example um, and mm. it's such a common medication that I see on quite a few patients' medication lists. And we know that, the, that these medications don't come with a, without their own side effects. Uh, so it's really important that we kind of identify people who need to be on these tablets that affect, that affect the stomach acid and those that don't need to be on there. Because actually, as you mentioned, the microbiota, being on tablets like omeprazole, which blocks acid production by the stomach, actually alters the pH within within our intestines. And there's 
actually there's thinking and research coming out that actually that's affecting our microbiota so it is important that we look at um this, these tablets and what we can do to kind of reduce the use of what we call proton pump inhibitors. There's a lot of information online about various diets that may or may not help reflux. And a lot of it's misleading. For example, I mean, I hate actually talking about people that are kind of spreading these diets and misinformation because I feel like I continue to give them publicity in doing it. But, you know, there's various diets, such as the celery diet, where you have to choose, I think it's exactly 16 ounces of celery and you've got to have it on an empty stomach and it's meant to cure a variety of conditions Hashimoto's uh, disease um, and also reflux which is why I'm mentioning it because people are using these diets thinking actually if I drink 16 ounces of celery on my empty stomach that's going to cure my reflux and the truth is it won't however a lot of people I think go to social media because there's misinformation online and the sources aren't necessarily trusted. Um, and it's really confusing, even as a doctor looking at social media posts, working out who's a medical doctor, what the credentials are, because a lot of the time the credentials are hidden online and people call themselves doctor. There's no regulation about the use of the term doctor or registered, um, whatever, <laughs> you know. You can kind of make a title and it's just no one's there to actually say, actually, you can't use that title, that's misleading. So it's really hard to work out what to believe when you're looking online and, um, I do sympathise with patients and people looking for information online and being misled or going down the wrong path. And that's where these diets you mentioned can actually, unfortunately, lead people down the wrong path and they try things that actually aren't going to work and at worst might actually cause them harm. I, I agree with everything you said there. And I think absolutely in the world of nutrition as well, nutritionist isn't a protected title. So anyone with five minutes of knowledge can set up as nutritionist or nutritionist coach and can start schooling themselves that. And in the same, you can have doctors of naturopathy um, who can call themselves doctors and they are not medical doctors. And I think it's probably an area of really unmet need that conventional Western, or so to say conventional medicine, does not maybe treat these people with reflux is quite in the way that they like to be treated they don't there's not a cure for reflux and as you said there is side effects with omeprazole although it might provide you a know, temporary relief and i think that's probably where then they're searching for something and it seems really you know a simple thing to try these dietary modifications but i agree with you i think they're sort of often led down the wrong path and for example people giving up gluten while it's the, absolutely the right thing to do if you've got an allergy or celiac disease um, studies have shown that gluten-free diets increase your risk of cardiovascular disease long term so these dietary changes aren't without possible ramifications and i think it's really important to to you know be aware of that and that some of the dietary changes that are advocated don't actually sort of really make mechanistic sense how would how would giving up milk which is sort of just below a neutral pH, it's not going to increase the acid. How would that or how would gluten have an effect? And I think we don't know enough yet about the microbiota and about its role in, in reflux. And I think there are studies that are showing that maybe the esophageal microbiota and the microbiome are actually potentially different or altered. I mean, I wonder then how it's all linked if you if you have reflux 
and then you take a meprazole, what effect that has on your microbiota longer term, and then if it if it has any negative deleterious effects that then increase your risk of of reflux if if there's sort of you know chicken and egg in a cycle going on. From my point of view, I don't think we know enough about it, but I think that because of that situation, there arise all these different diets. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it sounds like you would caution them as well. So what would you advise if you had a patient coming to you um, and they were complaining of, you know, burning pain, which was sort of classical of reflux or an irritant cough, as you mm. said, you described mm. as well. What would the what would you advise them to do? So I'd definitely be going over those sort of lifestyle points you mentioned earlier on. So looking at people's diet and actually things like uh, caffeine, alcohol, we know that they're triggers for reflux. Also, obesity we've spoken about and being pregnant puts more pressure on your tummy. So you're more likely to develop reflux. So looking at those kind of factors, I mean, there's a there's a sort of advice about raising the head of the bed um, by ten or twenty degrees. So putting a brick under the where you where your pillow is and under the bed, and I just think how practical is that? I think I'd be quite uncomfortable. So I'm not necessarily a huge advocate of that one, but that is an option if people want to try it as well. Um, we know stress, smoking, that kind of thing also has an impact, as you've as you mentioned. Uh, first line in terms of uh, treatment by NICE is that you start a proton pump inhibitor if it's just purely sort of reflux symptoms and that's to reduce the acid secretion because we know that within our stomach we have cells that make up the stomach lining called parietal cells they produce acid and what the proton pump inhibitor medication does is it blocks secretion of the of hydrochloric acid from the, from the parietal cells by binding to them so it basically stops production of acid um, which reduces um, reflux symptoms so what nice recommend is actually being on the medication for one month in total and then reassessing at that point um, and then we can look at things that might also be contributing these include microorganisms that live within the stomach lining known as helicobacter pylori so testing for those to make sure that's not a contributing factor um, and then we go down the line of further tests whether that's endoscopy to look at to look for any other causes and also think about different causes that might be causing similar symptoms things like core stones um, and other pathologies within the within the abdomen. And I think that's really, in a nutshell, the kind of management for uh, reflux symptoms when you see your GP. I think they'd want to take a full history and examine you as well. Perfect. Thank you. And I think the only thing that I would add to that is that there is evidence that a high fibre diet may reduce the symptoms of reflux. And I think then if, if you think of sort of eating fruit and vegetables, maybe that's having an effect because it's helping diversify your uh, microbiota I'd encourage optimizing that and it'd be interesting to see as more research is done about the sort of the effects of the microbiota and microbiome great so um, I'm now going to ask you about candidate so this is another thing that I get asked a lot about uh, so candidate is thrush and it's uh, a fungus it's what's called a commensal so it's living happily on your skin but problems can occur when it grows more than other microorganisms so for example if you have antibiotics and that uh, kills some of your normal uh, skin bugs so your normal bacteria then you can have these overgrowth of of candida so you might have like vaginal or penile or oral candidates so thrush and that's happens in healthy people normally after they've had something like antibiotic or it can happen more seriously in people who are immunocompromised because they've say had chemotherapy or if you've got say an indwelling piece of plastic in you so you've got like a port or a catheter 
can become colonized and for those people it's actually really difficult and really well it's not difficult but it's really serious um uh to treat and um, whereas for healthy people it's normally pretty simple do you see people coming to you with thrush that often and um and do you have well first of all we just talk about sort of simple normal what i would call sort of normal thrush that so yeah i do see a lot of thrush in clinics uh, predominantly uh, young females tend to present with thrush discharge itching and redness might be a bit sore down below um, and that's kind of the common thrush symptoms that we treat and there's lots of medications that you can try over the counter initially without a prescription if that's the case and then if it is a bit more if it's not responding or you have frequent bouts of candida then we also need to look at other causes and things like checking your bloods looking at hb1c which um, is a marker of diabetes and pre-diabetes um, checks your blood sugar control over about a three-month period is also important because there's a risk that actually if you have raised blood sugars that could also be contributing to recurrent candida infections. Great. So um, have you then come across on sort of social media, then this sort of chronic candida, it's like cr- candida overgrowth. Is that something that you've seen much of or people come in and talk about? So I've seen it mentioned um, on social media, actually, but it's not something that I've seen that much in my clinic. But when you look at social media, it always looks like a bigger problem than maybe it is in reality, because I'm not seeing that many patients translating into my clinics as I'm seeing discussion online I'm not sure about you that's that's good no I often get asked about it so I would sort of so I personally think and it'd be interesting to know what you think I think this is a social media diagnosis I don't think it's a real diagnosis because I think that the symptoms are quite vague and nebulous and I think that they're easy to attribute to something else that maybe there's no evidence for in my opinion so candidate over there's sort of lots of chat about chronic candida sort of overgrowth and that you've maybe got sort of a subacute candida infection so this is in healthy people I'm not talking about people with anything else going on this is in otherwise healthy people and they report things like brain fog joint pain craving for sweets mood changes and I find that really mechanistically difficult to um, to link with chronic candida and so it'd just be interesting to know what you think of it as well yeah i mean i'd agree I'd, i'm not necessarily sure that i could say that all those symptoms were just simply due to a chronic candida infection i think we need to do more tests we need to take a better history um and do some further investigation people are having these symptoms i think to put this down to candida infection without doing any tests um would be slightly dangerous actually um, and neg- negligent and we've also got to look at where this information is coming from quite a lot of the time people putting out this information have some sort of financial gain from the diagnosis that they're promoting um, whether that's products antibiotics supplements for it um, so you really do need to keep an open mind and question anyone's motive who are giving you a diagnosis and then also selling you something either that's a book or medications yeah absolutely i think that's a really great lesson um so and often this chronic candidate is associated with taking like oregano oil have you mm-hmm. have you had people come in and ask you about that much or is that something you've just really rarely read on social media so i've had patients have come in um having bought these products and actually as predicted they haven't worked and they're still ongoing symptoms so they've uh, come to me as a GP uh, for further sort of investigation and management, but they've not actually been asking me for these products, but they have been using them, and actually it's meant that they've delayed their diagnosis um, and suffered unnecessarily over that period of time. Probably there's an element of anxiety as well that sort of builds with these diagnoses as people probably read more information online, become more anxious. Uh, so it really transitions from being just a physical diagnosis sometimes to actually 
affect their mental health. Um, and I think that's such an important thing is actually making sure that people understand the diagnosis and that we educate them as practitioners so that it reduces anxiety and that they and we direct them to credible resources. Absolutely. I think you've mentioned, you know, brought up a really important point there that if if you've diagnosed yourself on social media with you know with these symptoms and thought, oh that's chronic candidate overgrowth, but actually you're then not yourself treating with something that's not going to work and actually there's something more serious underlying those symptoms that's really quite worrying and that it potentially delays the diagnosis so I think if you are worried that you maybe have this go speak to your GP you know, talk about what supplements you might have taken or herbal remedies and you know and get checked out because something like that should really be a diagnosis of exclusion when you've excluded all other other causes really because there's no there's no quick test to check that you've got chronic candidate overgrowth and I, I think it sort of goes along with um people talking about estrogen dominance that causes candidate overgrowth so is that something you get asked about as much as well um not so much i guess it's more kind of the supplements that people ask me about at the moment um as you mentioned the oregano oil i think that's probably something that i prefer to cook with than use as medication um <laughs> To be honest with you. Yeah, I should I think so. I think it's the I think you shouldn't actually cook up with I should just say that I think it's um essential oil. So cook with oregano, but don't cook with the, the oil. The supplement world and these sort of herbal remedies are so um the restrictions are so different to medications, aren't they? And I think it just really wants to sort of highlight that. And mm. and with my you know multiple hats on, I find it really quite quite concerning that a lot of these things are really pushed out there online and there are there's so so few limitations so for example oregano oil there's limited evidence in cellular models that it may prevent candida biofilm formation so that's candida forming in a sort of film um, over some cells but there's no animal there's no animal studies there's no human studies we don't know what a therapeutic dose is we don't know how it compares with antifungals we don't know whether there would be side effects from the dose in humans um so the safety profile is so unknown and you'd never release a drug like that you you'd know the safety profile uh, you'd know the dose and you'd probably have a biomarker of effect so you'd be measuring the sort of outcomes where where supplements like this are sort of I don't know, set free into the world with so so few things known about them. I find it astonishing, to be honest. But I, again, I think it probably comes back to sort of that unmet need. People have those symptoms. They don't feel maybe conventional medicines helping with them sometimes. And and it seems like an, a solution then to have to take this. And it's kind of sad, especially if it's going to prevent you getting the diagnosis that you need or or, you know, there's something else going on that you could actually have some help with. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I definitely feel very sad for patients who are in that desperate position where they don't know where to turn to help. We're having problems uh, with GP appointments, patients accessing NHS care at the moment uh, following the pandemic, and people are incredibly desperate. And you know, I see that day in, day out when I'm doing my clinics. I'm fitting patients in during my breaks, my lunchtime, because the demand is just so huge at the moment. So I can only see that sort of desperation for information and medical advice growing online. Um, and that comes with risks and dangers for patients. And I just hope that people are questioning the information and the people giving out the information. Um, and as you said, you know, people, the studies that you're mentioning that there weren't actually any studies in any animals or humans. So when people are saying, quoting studies in inverted commas, People should be asking where are these studies, what 
who's the author, when, where was it published, what date, is it a animal study or a in vitro kind of lab experiment? So people need to be intuitive and to ask the right questions and advocate. Absolutely. And I, I think that um, for me, I, I know I've, I've probably said this before, but I don't really feel that I was able to read a scientific paper properly until I, until I'd done so as an academic clinical fellow I did six months of research in the lab before my PhD and it was only then during my PhD when I was working with cellular and animal models I really understood it and I think then it's probably you know the majority of doctors probably don't do laboratory based PhDs or have you know direct experience and and if then well first of all I find it really difficult as a doctor with that experience and as a registered nutritionist to unpick the social media stuff and I think gosh if I'm finding it difficult what must everyone else be thinking as well you know who doesn't have that you know the, the benefit of that experience and I think then that if you if you ask someone who's quoting something ask them for the study and then go and ask a doctor to to interpret it if, if you're struggling or you need some help or I'm sure that you know you probably have got very little time at the moment but if someone came to you with with something you'd be able to sort of you know point them in the direction of something that was credible or you know help them maybe um you know, sort of say no well actually this is just done in cells so it's not really yeah. so relevant but I think it's it's a really tricky area n- not just for medical professionals but you know for the wider public as well yeah and that's a great point if you are worried or have any questions about newspaper headlines or what you've read information online actually just bring it along to the GP appointment or with your healthcare professional bring that sort of paper along with you um, and we can have a quick look and as you say just give you the right advice or point in the right direction uh, because it is incredibly confusing because people quite yeah. often just pick the top line out of the study and neglect the other 99% of it and it forms quite a big headline in the paper or tabloid yeah it does and and also I think that a lot of the time it's much sort of sexier information and it's far more interesting or it spreads a lot quicker that oregano oil cures candida than actually we don't have the evidence to support that at the moment you know more studies are needed <laughs> yeah. it doesn't go quite as far on social media so. yeah it never really sells does it that line no <laughs> no it doesn't um, so yeah, no, I think that's that's really helpful. And I I must say, for me, you know, I find some of these terms. There certainly were terms that I used as a doctor, and and I have to then really unpick them and go you know, into the literature or you know PubMed and and search them to see are they a social media term or is yep. this you know it has has been a big new discovery that I wasn't aware of. And I think it's I think it's really hard. And I think a lot a lot of the tabloids and Instagram and social media. They want that top line and quite often, you know, X causes Y. And when you actually research it and the more knowledge you have, the more you realise you cannot come up with sort of a blanket term that X causes Y and more, as you say, more studies are needed and there's lots of caveats and it becomes more complicated. So it was almost like the more that you know, the more that you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the the people who are mo- most confident with what they know are the people that are most able to say, I don't know that. And I, I, I respect those people hugely. Um, and, and I think it's really tricky unpicking all of this stuff. And so, you know, you, you go to your GP if you're if you're worried. Um, if you've got a problem, don't look on social media. Just go to a medical professional who can help you and give you some sound evidence-based information. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are worried you've got thrush, really the dietary changes are not going to make a huge difference unless 
uh, I'll just add that you know improving your microbiota will help your you know support that to help get, get things back into uh, a better equilibrium balance but um, otherwise you know a special dairy-free gluten-free diets are, are not going to to help you mm-hmm. yeah I completely agree with that great well thank you so much um for, for spending your time I'm sure it must have been an incredibly busy 18 months and I'm sure that as a GP I know that GPs are selling I sort of heard a quote I think it was a million more patients a day than they were pre-pandemic so I know that well we don't always see you face to face that you are there busy seeing patients and, and doing amazing work and have, have been central to the the vaccination program as well so so uh, certainly thank you from me to all gps but i'm sure that there's lots of other people out there thinking the same exactly yeah and thank you to all the other healthcare professors who've worked incredibly hard over this sort of period of time to keep everyone healthy and alive yeah and how do you feel about going into the winter then with with covid quite high and and winter bugs and things are you feeling Worried. I'm a little bit nervous about numbers, um, so we will just have to kind of see what's happening. I'm pleased to see a lot of people coming forward for their third vaccination, flu vaccinations. Um, so hopefully that will give us some sort of protection, um, help you know colleagues in the hospitals, um, and keep people safe and well over this winter period. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. I really hope you enjoyed listening and I'd love if you'd give me a five-star review and subscribe so that other people can find me too. I'm also at Healthy Eating Doctor on Instagram and I have lots more nutrition education information on both my video courses and on my website healthyeatingdoctor.com.